0: All right, we are in lesson number 90 in your books, The Light of the World Part 2. And if you want to open up your Bibles, you can get yourself positioned in John chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 30. We'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we do thank you that your word is infinite, that it just keeps growing, and we keep digging, and as we dig, we find more nuggets of truth, more light. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, the light of the world, for the deliverance from sin which he alone offers us. And then, the direction of life that he gives us, that we might have life and have it even more abundantly. And we thank you, Father, for the destiny of heaven that he alone has provided for us. And then, of course, because we're delivered from sin and we have a direction of life and we know that our destiny is heaven, we have a duty here to this world. And that duty is to ourselves be light to this dark world and may we do that lord may we truly be light now we thank you for this privilege we have to meet in this beautiful facility for the sole purpose of getting to know your son the lord jesus christ better and i pray lord that you would use the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts that we might lift you up jesus where we pray in your blessed name amen in the same place where just the past six evenings in a row the jews had performed uh, performed a fantastically beautiful and exciting and i guess we could even say scriptural illumination of the temple ceremony scriptural because they did sing a lot of the the psalms in in the, the ceremony in this very same place where this illumination of those giant menorah had taken place which was of course we learned in the court of the women uh, Jesus had stood up and declared himself very boldly, perhaps even pointing to those four giant menorah that had just been lit the night before and may have even been flickering still. And maybe with his other hand even pointing, pointing at the sun as it was rising in the sky. And very boldly, what did he say? Let's look at verse 12. He said, I am... The light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, did you realize there are three aspects of that particular statement? There is the claim aspect, there is the invitation aspect, and there is the promise aspect. His claim was threefold. He was basically saying in that statement, I am sinless God. Who is light? God is light we are told in scripture Um, and God of course we know is sinless and light is a picture of it is symbolic of purity and holiness it's the absence of darkness right so and everybody all the Jews knew that he this was a reference to the Shekinah light and they all knew that the Shekinah glory was God himself leading Israel in the wilderness and God himself dwelling above the tabernacle and in the uh, temple. So he was claiming to be God by that statement. I am sinless God. He was also claiming by that statement to be the Messiah of Israel. The Jews knew that many of the names of the Messiah, their coming Messiah... Uh, were light names in fact the rabbis even said that another name for the messiah could be light because in scripture he is referred to as the light that uh, would lighten israel he is called the sun sun of righteousness he's referred to as a star out of jacob he's called the refiner's um, fire and other names um such as that. So he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Messiah of Israel. And what else was he claiming? Threefold claim. He was claiming to be the Savior of the whole world. He said, I am the light, not just of Israel, but I am the light of the, uh, of the world. So he was claiming to be that one who, the light that would come to lighten those who were sitting in darkness. The Gentiles. He was a light to lighten the Gentiles. So his claim was threefold. I am God, I am the Messiah of Israel, and I am the Savior of the whole world, Jew and Gentile. But his invitation was, is there such a word as (laughs) onefold? Singular. His invitation was singular and very simple. You know, the invitations that Jesus gives to man are always very simple, very profound. I passed a church on my way up here, and it said, what did it say? It said something like, the gospel message is... Plain and simple. And I thought that's so true. All he said, you know what his invitation is in this verse? Follow. Follow me. Do you remember what he said to his first two disciples, Andrew and John? All he said was, come and see. That's all you have to do when you go out into the world, is invite people to come and see. I had the privilege of going to visit, knocking on a door uh, of an apartment to visit to. Young girls. I didn't know there were two in the house when I, got, when I w- went there, the apartment, but there were two. I went to see one in particular because I was told that she was really needy. And um, the, 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 talk about people sitting in darkness. There are a lot of people sitting in darkness. I walked into that little apartment, and it was dark. The shades were pulled. It was dark. It was sad. Young girls in their 20s, both of them on depression medicine both of them just in in darkness sad sad and i i was able to share with them the gospel message and um, it's interesting because they had been reading the bible not really understanding it but both of them asking god to help them out of their pit of despair and one of the guys in our church had knocked on the door but they don't want to open to a guy which i don't blame them So he came and got me and i went and i just i just gave them a simple invitation it can be very simple i said come and see you're in darkness i want you to see the light the light of the world i'm going to be back at six o'clock i'm going to pick you up you'll be ready for church and we're going to go and see and they were ready and they came and saw and it was wonderful they were crying the message was just for them it was beautiful. And as I took them home, and there was a little five-year-old girl involved too, as I dropped them off back at their apartment, one of them said to me, you know, if you hadn't come today, I don't think I would have made it through the day. There's a lot of people sitting in darkness. Sometimes we're so used to the light, we forget about how many are out there in the darkness. All we have to do, like Jesus, say, come and see. Come and see. Uh, another time to Philip, he said, follow me. Saw Philip, he said, follow me. Philip followed him. Found out he is indeed the light of the world. He said to a tax collector named Levi, same thing, follow me. Levi became Matthew, who wrote one of our gospel messages. He followed him and he found the light of the world. Jesus said, "Um, come unto me, learn of me. It's that simple. Invite people to the Bible study, come and see, learn of him. That's what we're doing in here. Another time in Revelation, very simple invitation. He said, I stand at the door knocking. All you got to do is what? Open the door. Open the door of your heart. Let me in. So the claim was threefold. The invitation was simple. It was onefold. And the promise was twofold. What was his promise? He said, he that followeth me, number one, shall not walk in darkness. Follow him. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. Number two, you shall have the light of life. You shall have what? Eternal life. Redemptive life. And we talked about the fact that that is different from creative light, such as is described for us in John 1.19, where it says, The true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That is speaking of the light that God puts into every man. The knowledge of himself. He has created all man, men in his image. That's creative light. But if you follow the light that he puts into you, you will receive, if you accept him as your Lord and Savior, you will receive what kind of light? The light of life, redemptive life. So there's a distinction. Also, notice, by way of his statement of John eight twelve, that we have a definition of the natural man. The natural man is the one who stumbles and gropes about in this world. He's in darkness. What's the definition of the natural man, the unregenerate man, the unsaved man? He is the one who is walking in darkness. He's groping around, stumbling. He knows nothing other than the things of this immediate world as he sees them, as he senses them with his five senses. He walks in darkness. He's ignorant, really. He doesn't like to hear this, but he's ignorant of what this life is all about. And he's... He's ignorant about the life that follows. But in spite, this is the strange thing, in spite of his stumbling and his groping around in, in the darkness, uh, sinful men love that darkness, don't they? Why? And why do they hate the light? You ever notice that evil deeds always seem to take place in dark places? They always occur in dark places. You go by a building, and, and, and notice this too. If you go by a church that doesn't have any windows at all, and there are some that are called halls and temples and things like that, isn't that a little bit suspicious? Evil things take place in dark places. Uh, sinful men don't like the light because the light uncovers their evil ways. So they, they love the darkness and they hate the light. The darkness is hostile to light. And that is exactly what we find very clearly presented by the reaction of yet another group of Pharisees. Now, these Pharisees we're going to see in verse 13 are not the same Pharisees that we saw up in verse 3 who were together with some scribes and brought the adulterous woman to Jesus. Remember, they left the scene. But we could say very easily that Pharisees at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles were ubiquitous. That means they were everywhere. They were just everywhere. And that makes sense. I mean, the religious rulers of all the different sects would be in Jerusalem at this particular time. So the city would be flooded with priests and Sadducees and scribes and Pharisees. They were just everywhere. So we find another group of Pharisees and they react to the Lord's very bold statement of John 8, uh, 12. And instead of, of course, instead of considering the possibility of his declaration being true, they immediately jumped on what they saw as yet another possible way that they could attack him. Now, others of their kind had already struck out very... In two previous situations, number one, when they had sent out the temple police to arrest him. And number two strikeout was when they had come together with an adulterous woman. And in that particular situation, well, actually in both situations, their attempts were very embarrassing failures. I mean, in the second situation, the scribes and Pharisees left very shamefully with thousands of pairs of eyes looking at them. But apparently they were really gluttons. (laughs) These guys were really gluttons for punishment because they're going to come to bat once again. They're going to strike out again. But we'll notice as we keep going through John chapter 8, they keep coming to the bat. Three strikes isn't enough for them. They keep coming back for more and more punishment. So here is what they thought. After the Lord said, I am the light of the world, they thought this was a golden opportunity given to them by Jesus himself for them to disprove him. Once and for all, and to show the people that they were superior in their spiritual knowledge, um, superior to him, and that he was nothing but a fraud. So this is where we begin part two of our Light of the World sermon. And in our lesson, you you see on the outline, we're going to be looking at four different divisions. We're going to look at the Lord's witness, the law's witness, the Lord's way, and the Lord's word. So let's begin by looking at the Lord's witness, verses 13 to 16. Immediately after he made his I am the light of the world statement, it says in verse 13, The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. I stop right there and tell you, number one, that is not true. He had already given them five witnesses of all that he said the last time he was in Jerusalem. And you can, we'll be looking at that in John chapter five. So that was actually not a true statement. So they said, thou bearest record of thyself. And then they go on and say, thy record is not true. What were they actually saying to him? Yeah. They're calling him a liar. You are a liar. And verse 14 says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. Remember we said how many times the word true is found in this sermon? Because light equals truth, truth equals light. He says, my record is true, for I know whence I came. I know where I came from and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man, and yet if I judge, my judgment is, there's that word again, true. For I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. When these religionists heard the Lord's claim, I am the light of the world, etc., They understood, they very well understood all that was involved in it. In other words, they understood his claim to deity, they understood his claim to being the Messiah, they understood his claim to being the Savior of the whole world. But their only reaction was to shrink back from from that light, from his light, the light of truth, because they just couldn't bear the purity of its beams. And this proves the truth of uh, John 1, 5, where it says the light shineth in darkness and what? The darkness comprehended it not so what we find is that immediately after the Lord's invitation to follow him and this is generally tr- true we find this very generally true in the case whenever the gospel message of salvation in Christ is given what happens as soon as the invitation is given the black ravens of evil intent will swoop down to snatch up the good seed that has been sown before it can take root in men's hearts, right? Isn't that what often happens? Before the people here, and there was lots of people in that court of the women that day. It's set up in verse 2, all the people came unto him. Uh, And so before they could even really meditate on the power of the Lord's words, the Pharisees began their dirty work to try to silence truth and to snuff out the light that God had sent to them. And we talked last week about how that's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible to silence truth. God will always have his truth in the world. His light will always be somewhere shining in the world. So in effect, what they said, what the Pharisees said was, Ha! We've got you this time, Jesus. you just done a big boo-boo. you just put your foot in your mouth. You're bearing record of yourself. And as I said, that's not true, because he'd already given five witnesses to them before. But they said, you're bearing record of yourself, and therefore, your record is not true. Therefore, you are a liar. You're lying. Now, that's not exactly what the law of God (laughs) stated. As usual, what they did here was they took God's word, and they used it, you know, they they took it and twisted it and turned it. So that it would fit with what they wanted. All right, they they took the word of God and used it to their own for their own evil purposes. In Deuteronomy 17:6, and in Deuteronomy 19:15, and in Numbers 35:30, 30, and in three places in the New Testament—Matthew uh, 18:16, Hebrews 10:28, and somewhere in First Corinthians, I forgot to write it down. Second Corinthians 13:1, maybe it is. It talks about the fact that there have to be two or three witnesses in order to accuse someone of sin. And there have to be two or three witnesses to stone somebody to death for sin or to, you know, whatever the punishment might be. There have to be two or three witnesses for that. But the law does not say that a person... It doesn't say a person cannot give witness of himself, of his own character, or of his own actions without the law of God automatically calling him a liar. I mean, that's not what... That is not at all what the law has to say. Even even if Jesus did... I'll get back to that in a minute. But even if Jesus did testify of himself and of his person and of his purpose, his mission... His word certainly should not be despised and disregarded as false just because he was the, the one, the only one at that time who was making that particular claim. Scripture, as I just said, does not oppose a person giving a personal witness. It does not say that a person giving a witness of himself is automatically a liar. Let me give you an example. If I um, go out to California, or let's—my son is there. So let's let me go somewhere where I don't know anybody. Let's, let's say I go to um, Egypt. You're going to send me to Egypt. All right. Let's say I go to Cairo, Egypt, and um, somehow or another I can speak Egyptian, <laughs> and I get up before a group of people and I introduce myself and I say, "I'm Catherine Caldwell, and I'm from uh, West End, North Carolina, in the United States of America." And um, I have three children and whatever, blah, 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 whatever I say about myself to them. And one of the Egyptians stands up and says, aha, you are a liar (laughs) because you are giving witness of yourself. Now, that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? That is not what the law of God says, that if a person gives a witness of himself, he's automatically a liar, liar. The only thing that remotely would come close to this would be the rabbi's own law. And notice, if you will, in verse 17, we'll get to that in the next section, but it says, Jesus speaking, he said, it is also written in your law. Okay, in the rabbi's law, their law, a person's witness of himself and just of his only witness, his sole witness of himself in a court of law In defense of himself, in other words, if he's been accused of a crime and he's the only one to defend himself, that witness could not stand alone. All right? So really, um, the burden of proof in this situation is on them because Jesus hasn't done a sin. So if they want to prove that he has committed a sin... They have to be the ones to come up with two or three witnesses to accuse him of sin. He's just making a statement, a declaration of himself. You see, are you following me? Okay, and you know what? They never could come up with two or three witnesses to speak out against him. Even at the end, they have to hire false witnesses, bribe false witnesses to speak out against him. So but we can understand, I mean our court system would it runs the same way. A person can't give be the only one to give a defense of himself. Uh, that doesn't stand alone. And the Lord understood this too, which is why he said over in John five thirty one, just go back there, a few pages, John five thirty one, and look at the Lord's own words. So the last time he was in Jerusalem, he gave this big sermon in John chapter five called the sermon on the judgment and resurrection power of the son. And in John five thirty one, he had said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. So maybe this is what the Pharisees were thinking of. Aha, you said, if you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Now you're bearing record of yourself, so your witness is not true. Well, he had gone on to give them five witnesses that what he said was true. What he was really saying in John 5.31 was that if there were no other witnesses, if what he said about himself did not agree, had no support with what God himself said about the true Messiah, or with what the Scriptures said about the true Messiah, or with what his own words and his own works said about the coming Messiah, if his works and his words didn't line up with the... Uh, scripture, then his witness would prove false, right? I mean, that's how they found out if somebody was, that's how they were supposed to find out if somebody was a false witness. If his, if his witness didn't line up with what God had to say about the Messiah and the scripture with what, what scripture had to say, if he didn't come from the right lineage and the right tribe and wasn't born in the right place and all that sort of thing, then they could know that he was a false messiah. So what Jesus was saying in John 5.31 is that if there were no other witnesses, if that was the case, um, then he would be false. But he had then gone on to give them not just two or three to satisfy them. Now, as God, he didn't have to have another witness. He's God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But because he's also the God-man, he would... um, Go ahead and do what man requires your law. So he didn't just provide, he always does exceeding abundantly, right? He didn't just give them two or three witnesses. He went on to give them five witnesses. And you can read those witnesses who they were in in verses 32 to 39 of John chapter 5. We covered this in, in our study. So if he was independent of God and all of God's prophets from Moses all the way down to uh, Malachi and including John the Baptist. You know who those five witnesses were, by the way? Let me just give them to you. The five witnesses that he gave to them back in John chapter 5 were his own words, God's words, his own works, John the Baptist, and um, Scripture. So if he was independent of those five witnesses... um, If John the Baptist didn't, you know, he was the forerunner of the Messiah. If he didn't point to him and say, here's the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. If God, what God said, didn't agree with him. If his own words and works did not give testimony as to who he was, then his claim could be disregarded. But that was not the case. In fact, in light of who he is. I say in light, that's a pun. He is the light, right? In light of who he is, he could really give witness of himself. As he says in verse 14, though I bear witness of myself, yet my record is true. You see, he claimed to be the light of the world. And the reality of light is affirmed by the very fact that it shines just go outside today. The, the, the reality of the fact that, that light exists is, is in the, the fact that it shines. Light has to bear witness of itself. The truth of its existence is the fact that it does shine. It doesn't need any other witnesses. <laughs> if a person... It, wouldn't it be silly for me if I walked outside... And saw the light out there, you know, coming from the sun. Even there's light if the sun is behind a cloud, there's light. If I said, well, I don't really believe that this is light, um, so I need more more signs that there's light out here. I need more witnesses. I need more evidence that these light bulbs are giving me light. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Because the light testifies of itself that it's light just by the fact that it's shining the only ones who cannot see light are those who are either blind or they're willfully lying they see the light but they're denying the fact that they see the light and i think a lot of these guys fall in that category they saw the light shining from him but they just did not want him around so jesus made a you know and i thought about even even blind people can feel the warmth from light you know if they're spiritually sensitive when jesus walked by there were some blind men that called out to the son of david they felt the warmth of the light walking by so jesus made a self-evident declaration of truth that was confirmed you see by the light that shined forth from him just in his Flawless character. Don't you know that if there was some sin in his life, that these guys who were always after him to find something, that they would have found that in a heartbeat, whatever it might have been, you know, they would have found it. It's just another evidence of who he is, that he is indeed God, that they were nev- never able to find any flaw in his character. So the light shined out from him from his flawless character. From his undeniable miracles, people couldn't deny that, that he performed miracles. Now, of course, they said, well, we know you're doing them, but you must be doing them in the power of Satan, Beelzebub. Uh, his light shined forth from his authority and his power. I mean, even the other scribes and Pharisees felt the, the authority of his, of his words, and they all left the scene with that adulterous woman situation, And the temple guard felt the authority and the power of his presence and his words and came back empty-handed saying, Never man spake like this man. We can't touch him. He was just oozing with light in all these different ways. And of course, uh, not only his, his authority, his power, his character, his miracles, but his matchless words. As I said, never man spake like this man. If people could not see the light of truth shining from him, it only really gave evidence that they were blind, willfully blind or willfully lying about what they did see in him. Well, the Lord went on to give a, in verse 14, to give a very solemn and weighty reason for why his testimony of himself should be reverently, reverentially uh, received by the Jews. And that reason is because he came to them as the one who knew the mysterious truths from the unseen world. You see, men ca- could not tell where Jesus came from, men could not know where he was going. And why is that? Well, simply because men cannot see into. Eternity past and eternity future. We cannot see into the spiritual world. We can't look into heaven. Now, don't you wish you could get a little? Well, you can get a sneak preview by reading the end of the book of Revelation. um, It's described for us, but we can't see into the spiritual dimension. So Jesus had to come from heaven, from the spiritual dimension of being, of existence and he had to come. he's the one who had been in the presence of, of God, himself, God the Father, throughout all of eternity past. So he had to come here in order to tell men about God. So in essence, what we could a paraphrase of, of John 8 verses 14 and 15 is this. and just listen to me. This is a Caldwell paraphrase, so that means it's rather wordy. But uh, <laughs> here's in essence what he was saying: "I speak in the full consciousness of my previous and my future existence in the glory of the Father. Therefore, I have every right to be believed on my own testimony. If you only knew where I came from, as I do, and if you only knew, as I do, where I'm going, then you would not need or you would not want any other witnesses than myself. My witness would be more than sufficient. If you only knew who I was, remember what he said to the woman at the well? If you only knew who it was that you were talking to, <laughs> you would say, give me, give me the water to drink. And and going on with the paraphrase, and you would know this, you would know all these things, that my witness is true, if you were judging, trying to judge me in the spirit. But you're you're judging and you're determining everything on fleshly um, principles according to outward appearances that's what he says in verse 15 you judge after the flesh you're judging everything by your own carnal false standards and therefore you've already judged me as an imposter they judged him right away from the beginning didn't they they'd already they made up their minds don't give me the facts i've already made up my mind So you've already judged me on your false carnal standards as an imposter worthy of death. Your minds are full of carnal prejudices, and that is why my testimony seems worthless to you. End of paraphrase. (laughs) So the natural man judges after the flesh, doesn't he? He walks in darkness, and he judges after the flesh. And sadly, we have to watch that. Because even believers can do this. We can judge after the flesh. Remember godly Samuel, the prophet Samuel? He was going to judge after the flesh when he thought that surely Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, was going to be the next anointed king of Israel, that God had, would pick him because he was you know, strong and healthy and the right age and whatever. He certainly didn't think that it would be little, ruddy, shepherd boy David. And so the Lord had to teach him a lesson. He said, uh, it says in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh at the, what? Outward appearance, but the Lord looketh at the heart. If men are to judge Jesus' claims... They cannot do it on the basis of physical evidence. I have never seen Jesus. I've never seen him. And don't tell me that you have because you haven't seen him either. <laughs> I cannot put my hands, <clears throat> like Thomas was privileged to do, and he didn't even need to do once he saw him resurrected, but <clears throat> I've never put my hands... in in the um, nail prints in his wrists, and we'll get to that one day, it wasn't the palms, it was wrists, or his feet. I've never been able to put my hand in the hole in his side where he was pierced, right? We can't judge on physical evidence, Jesus Christ. We have to do so on spiritual evidence. But I do have some pretty solid evidence in this book (laughs) that I can judge by and that I should judge by. Blessed Jesus said, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus had said this same thing over. It just, if on my Bible, it's just the page next to it, where in John 7:24, He had said, "Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment." So He's just really repeating the same thing here in John 8:15. <clears throat> Men tend to not only judge according to outward appearance and ignore the inward condition but judging after the flesh is also judging by man's rules instead of by whose rules god's rules that's why the court system sometimes is so messed up because i want to make up their own rules instead of going by god's rules and what god has to say about thing things uh, to judge after the flesh is to judge the temporary as more valuable than the eternal isn't that so had and so short-sighted how many people are living for the here and now and not giving two cents of time and energy to thinking about the there and after to judge by the flesh is to judge that which gives physical nourishment everybody's all hung up about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear and all that kind of stuff instead of like you're doing here giving giving time uh, and putting it as a, a vital priority in your life the need for spiritual nourishment Spiritual nourishment is far more important than physical nourishment. Well, <clears throat> Jesus went on verse 6, uh, yeah, that latter part of 15. He said, I judge no man, and yet if I judge, my judgment, here's the word again, true. My judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. Ignorant of the facts and merely judging after the flesh, the Pharisees, presumed to sit in judgment on Jesus Christ isn't that amazing but here they are these little guys little i mean can you imagine what they look like from god's perspective in heaven and they're presuming to sit in judgment on Jesus Christ and yet he who had all the facts about heaven about god the father about god the holy spirit about himself god the son had all the facts from eternity past to eternity future, had all the facts about each and every one of them. He knew about them before they were even born, before the foundation of the world was established. He knew he could read their hearts like an open book. He knew all these things, and yet he was withholding judgment on them. You know, at his first coming, he didn't come to judgment, did he? He came not to condemn men, but to seek and to save that which was lost so his his whole um, attitude the thing that motivated him here is not the law but love he's concerned about these guys and that's why he says some of the very you know he doesn't pull back any punches he tells it like it is you're going to see next week lord willing he says you know you're of your father the devil It's love for them that drives him and that is motivating the fact that he isn't judging them right on the spot. I mean, he could just zap them and they'd be gone. But uh, when he does judge, his judgment is true. His judgment is true. Why? Because it is the very judgment of God, the father. He said, I am not alone, but I and the father that sent me. And we know elsewhere back in John chapter five, he did say that the father gave all judgment unto him. You know, when men stand, unsaved men and women and boys and girls, uh, I should say young people, stand one day before the great white throne judgment. Do you know who they're going to be standing before? Not God the Father. Jesus. The Father has given all judgment unto the Son. They're going to be standing before him. This then was really the lord's witness in response to the accusation that his claim to being the light of the world was no good in other words that it was false it was not true because he testified of himself however he did not ignore the requirement of the law which did require you know for man's purposes two witnesses now As I said, he really wasn't being accused of sin here, so he did not have to do this. As God, he certainly didn't have to do this. And as man, he had really already done it. Remember, he's the God man. He'd already done it. He'd already given them five witnesses. But just to accommodate them, he went ahead and he gave them two witnesses. And let's read about that next in verses 17 to 20. He says, it is also written in your law. That the testimony of two men is true. There's that word true again. Two men is true. So I'm going to give you more than the witness of just two men. I'm going to give you some very, very powerful witnesses. Here they are. Number one, I am one that bear witness of myself. There's your first witness. And who's the second witness? The father that sent me beareth witness of me. You want the witness of two men. I'm going to give you the witness of two of the members of the Holy, of the Holy Trinity. How's that for you? How'd you like those guys in court with you? If you (laughs) couldn't think of any better witnesses. Then said they unto him, where is thy father? Said that very sarcastically, as we'll see. Jesus answered, ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me... Ye should have known my father also. And then verse 20, we talked about this last week. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. This was no private statement. He made these statements right out in public, didn't he? In front of thousands of ears in the temple treasury. And it says, and no man laid hands on him. What does that tell us? I think they wanted to. (laughs) They had the will to hurt, but not the power. No man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. All right. <clears throat> First of all, he bore, he said, okay, for you, to accommodate you guys, I'll give you the two witnesses. Even though I've already given you five, I'll give you two more. First of all, I'll give you the witness of myself. And his witness, we've already discussed, was valid because of the extent of his knowledge. I mean, he knew everything, everything. he's the creator he knows everything there's not anything I could say that he doesn't know so his witness is the first witness and we know they already rejected that because they called him a liar second witness as to his person was that of his father who had sent him not only had the father already given witness to his son on two different occasions what was the first when the father spoke from heaven at his baptism when the father said this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and then the second witness from heaven was when right exactly the mount transfiguration when god spoke from heaven and said this is my beloved son hear ye him so the father had given verbal witness of his son he had also given witness of his son through the many prophecies of the old testament scriptures that clearly indicated jesus who was who he claimed to be, you know. He fulfilled all the messianic prophecies. The father also had borne witness of his son through the testimony of the forerunner, the voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, and he had given testimony of his son through the miracles Jesus performed by God the Holy, by way of God the Holy Spirit, which they had already said, "Well, you're doing in the power of Satan." So they not only rejected the witness of the the um, the Son, but the witness of the Father. Can you imagine two stronger witnesses in a court of law? <laughs> if you put God the Father and God the Son, my goodness, they rejected the witness of the lawgiver and the law fulfiller. And we know they already denied the witness of God the Holy Spirit, so they denied the witness of all three members of the Trinity. It's really sad. In fact, how did they respond to him now when he gave the two witnesses? As they always did, they responded to him very, very sarcastically, mocking him, saying, give the witness of your father, where is your father? They're probably looking around mockingly as they said that. In other words, they're saying, okay, where's your father? Go get him so he can bear witness to us of your claim." So in that, we really notice that they're proving Jesus' words of verse 15, ye judge after the flesh, they're proving that his words are true. Because all they're thinking is flesh. Okay, where is your father, your flesh father? Go get him. But they're doing all that, as I said, very scornfully, mockingly. In essence, they were really saying, uh, where is your Nazarene carpenter father, Jesus. We don't see him here. Oh, yeah, haven't we heard that he's dead? And isn't there some question that maybe he isn't really your legitimate father in the first place? And you know how I know they're thinking that? Go ahead and look at verse 41 of this same chapter. One. They're insinuating, they say, we be not born of fornication. Here, they're saying, you don't really even know who your father is, Jesus, do you? And notice that he never really answered their sarcastic and their ignorant question. Where is your father? He didn't give them the honor to answer that. He merely said, ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. You know what he is saying there? He is saying that you cannot know God apart from his son. You cannot know God apart without knowing god's son now do you know how many people in this world think they know god and they talk to god they pray to god they talk about god da 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 they even die for their god martyr themselves and all kinds of things and they don't know god at all because the only way you can know god God is through his son. He sent his son into this world to reveal himself to us. The only way to, we can't go to heaven and find out about God. God had to come to earth to tell us about him. And that's exactly what he did through his son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the father, but by me. No man knoweth the father, but by me. And this, oh my goodness, this was a serious rebuke to these men who prided themselves about their superior knowledge of God you know they professed to be the wor- if anybody knew God the true God it was them they professed themselves to be the world authorities on God you know if they could write a britannica encyclopedia on God the ones to write it would be them they're the experts <laughs> But Jesus revealed that despite their supposed knowledge of God and despite their feelings of superiority, they really, this is a big blow, this is a big punch, they really had no knowledge of God at all. Zero. None. They didn't know God at all. Because if they had, they would have recognized him in his son. He said, if ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. He said that later. Um, to his one of his own disciples, if ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. Well, of course, <laughs> this comment about their ignorance of God, along with um, the fact that he called God my Father twice in the verses we just read, and that was a big no-no. No Jews called dared to call God their Father, make it personal. Uh, that was that was blasphemy. I mean, according to them, that was making himself equal with God. Aren't you? Aren't we privileged? We can say, our Father, which art in heaven, he because he is personal. Because of Jesus Christ, we're brothers with. I mean, we're joint heirs with Christ. So he is now our Father. We have that privilege. But they didn't do that. So along with the fact that he he called them ignorant about knowing anything about God, that they didn't know God, and that over and over again he was really declaring that he was God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior of the world. He calls, dares to call God his Father. They want to seize him in order to permanently silence him. But as we read in verse 20, no man could lay hands on him. Why? His hour hadn't come. He wasn't going to give them the um, power to do that. They could not do that. So, knowing that there was nothing, his hating enemies, and don't you know they're standing there with daggers in their eyes at this point in time, there's nothing they can do about it. And knowing that he just he keeps nothing can stop Jesus. (laughs) Nothing, Nothing can stop the truth. Nothing can stop the light from shining. So he just continues to speak. You know why he continues to speak? He tells us he knows his time is growing short, but I think uppermost on his mind is the fact that their time is growing short. He knows their time is growing short. And it's love that is driving him, love that is motivating him, not the law here, but love for them. And so he continues on because he wants to warn them of the danger that is ahead for them. So let's look at the Lord's Way, verses 21 to 24. And said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come. Again, they're mocking him. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. Oh, Catherine, you forgot the word he. You know why? Isn't it italicized in your Bibles? You know what an italicized word in your Bibles means? It's not in the original. So you know what he really said there? If ye believe not that I am ye shall die in your sins. Who is I am that I am? God. Uh, Three three times. Once in verse 21 and twice in verse 24, he tells them that they're going to, this is a warning, you're going to die in your sins. Did you hear me? Let's say it again. You're going to die in your sins. One more time. You're going to die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. Sin brings what? Death. Death. The wages of sin is death. It's only believers in Christ, only believers in the light of the world, only believers in the deity of Christ, that he is I am, that he is all that he claimed to be, who will have their sins forgiven when they ask him to save them and repent of their sins. So this is weighty. This is There's a lot of meat in here, and I hope you'll go over this lesson because I have to just rush right through this. But the Lord, again, in verse 21, is predicting his own death and his ascension when he says, I go my way notice he didn't say i go your way i go my de- way. you see his death was his doing i'm going to go the way i'm going to go it's my doing not yours even though of course they would think it was theirs it wasn't his their way it was his way and he said that he would return to his father in heaven but they would die in their sins and go not his way Not only would he go his way by death, but he would go his way to heaven. They wouldn't go his way. They would go their way, the other way. And they would seek him. This is another prediction. We've talked about this before where he said, yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me, ye shall seek me and shall not find me. That was over in John 7:34. They would seek him, but they wouldn't find him. When would they first of all seek him? After he was dead. And they probably turned Jerusalem upside down looking for his body. Uh, having refused the light of I am the light of I am that I am, in their very presence, they would, the Jews as a whole, as a nation, they would continue on in darkness for centuries, wouldn't they? They would seek their Messiah. They're still seeking their Messiah, but they would not find him, other than, of course, the remnant of Jews that the Lord always has. So this this prophecy for Israel really is still in its fulfillment stage. Well, again, as they had done over in John 7:35, if you want to look at that, last time he said, you'll look for me and you won't find me because where I'm going, you won't be able to come. Last time he had said that, they had mocked him by saying, ha, I wonder where he'll go. Oh, we know. He'll go. He must be going to go and teach among the Gentiles because we certainly wouldn't do that and dirty ourselves. Now, this time they say, ha. Oh, Where is he going that we can't go? It must be that he's going to commit suicide. Because the Jews had a belief that anyone who committed suicide automatically went straight to hell. Now, that is not necessarily true. There are people who have been truly born-again believers who have taken their own lives. That does not mean that they go straight to hell because that is not the unpardonable sin. But the Jews believed this. Back in those days, and they said, Well, must be, he's going straight to hell because he's going to take his own life. There's a lot of irony in this, but um, it's in your notes. You'll have to look at it. Really, the opposite was true because they were the ones who were committing national spiritual suicide themselves. But in verse 23, he told them that the reason they were going in two different destinations, he was going to go to his father his way, they were going to go the other way, is because they had two different origins. He says, You're from beneath, not meaning that they were from hell, but they were from the world. He said, you're of this world. I'm from above. I am not of this world. He came from heaven, but they belong to earth. There was an, and there is an infinite gulf that separates man from heaven, right? Man from God. There was an infinite gulf that separated them. And, uh, and they were unwilling to accept his way to cross over that gulf. He is the one mediator between God and man. He's the one way to cross the gulf between that which is beneath on earth and that which is in heaven. It's faith in him. You know, he's the Jacob's ladder. He's the only way. He's the one way to heaven. The reason they would not be able to go where he was going was because they were too connected to this world. They were of this world. They liked the darkness of this world. And friendship with the world is enmity with God. So he reminds his hearers of the seriousness of their unbelief by saying, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. And they heard him say that. They definitely heard him say I am there because he didn't say he. (laughs) He said I am. And uh, when they heard that, they had another little brilliant light bulb go off. And they thought, okay, now we can, ca- we can get him to make a public, outright declaration uh, that he is the Son of God, that he is I am that I am, and we can accuse him of blasphemy. Look at all these witnesses that we would have. So not because they really wanted to know who he was, but because they wanted to murder him they ask the next question. Who art thou? What you see, Jesus always talked in ways, you know, metaphors and, and symbols, and ways he could get around, openly declaring, you know, I am God. I mean, he said it pretty clear, and they got it, but he didn't say it so much that they could stone him right then and there for blasphemy. He would say little things like we just looked at, if you believe not that I am He shall die in your sins. So now they want him to just come right out and declare who he is so that they can get rid of him. So let's look at verses 25 to 30. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And they're not asking that question because they really want to know. He's already told them over and over and over and over again, and they got it. They knew who he said he was. But they're trying to get him to say right out front, I am God. And they pick up stones and kill him. All right, so uh, they said, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them. Notice how again he gets around it, because it's not yet his hour to die. He says, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. You guys, you're kind of dense. I'm the same one I've been telling you all along who I am. And this, oh, this just breaks my heart. The next words. I have many things to say. Oh, have you ever felt that way? You know, when I was with those two girls the other day, I, I just had so many things I wanted to say to them. I just wish I could take my brain sometimes and all the things I've learned and just put it in other people's heads and say, Look, I just wish I could transfer it to you so you would know. The light, you'd see the light. He had many, can't you... He doesn't get frustrated because he's not like you and I. But, oh, if I was him, I'd be so frustrated. So many things, so many wonderful things he could have shared with these guys. But he couldn't. Just like he couldn't do any miracles in his own hometown of Nazareth because of their unbelief. He could not. And, you know, he could share with those two guys on the road to Emmaus, couldn't he? He started from the beginning of the scripture and he went through it. And he told them all, I would have loved to have been on that road. And learned all those things that Jesus himself had to say in the scriptures. I I know I'm just touching the hem of the garment when it comes to the richness of this book. But he couldn't share with these guys because of their willful blindness. I have many things to say and to judge of you. But he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. And look, they understood not. They just, you know. Light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them. Now here, this is his sneaky way of really answering their question, who art thou? He says, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man. Oh, not only is he predicting that they would be the ones who would kill him. You know, it would really be his way because he had predetermined it would be by being lifted up, being crucified. But they would be the ones to do it, and he knew it. When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, what's that? He's answering their question. The Son of Man was a, a messianic title. When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then, look at this, then shall ye know that I am. Forget that little he, it's not there. He's answering their question, but they couldn't do anything about it again because of the way he did it. And then he says, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my father, turn the page, hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And look at this. Oh, it ends on a good note. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Oh, yes, many saw the light. Many many saw that light shining out from the power of his person and the power of his words. And many, many believed on him. Many in that crowd listening understood he was indeed who he said he was. There's two more fantastic claims in here. Number one, that he says he has absolute dependence on his father. And number two, his father's absolute delight in him. Can you imagine any one of us ever making that claim? That I do always those things that please the father? Who could say that? Who could ever say that? I can't even say it for an hour. (laughs) Only the God man could make such a statement. Isn't he smart? Doesn't he always just know exactly what to say and how to handle people? Mm. It's just incredible. The scripture just deepens and wide, deep and wide, deep and wide. I can't sing. And my grandson, whenever I try to, he says, no, Grandma. (laughs) Don't sing. Even before he could speak, the first time I sang to him the ABCs, he started to cry. That's sad. All right, let's pray. Father, this whole, oh, we're so thankful for this passage, this Light of the World sermon. This whole passage is a declaration that Jesus is indeed the God-man who came down from heaven to be lifted up on a cross that he knew about so that we in this room and in this whole world would not have to die in our sins. If we will merely follow the light, if we will come and see, if we will open the door, if we will believe in our hearts that he is indeed who he claimed to be. And then where he has gone, we will be able to go also. We can go into heaven and be in your presence. Oh, Father, I pray that if there there is one in this room who has never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, into her heart that she would do so this very day and receive the light of life and stop groping about in the darkness of this world. And that each and every one of the rest of us who have already come to the light, that we would go forth this week and every day of our lives and be that light to others. For there are many, many, many sitting in darkness. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for, for this opportunity. We've, had to come apart and study your word and grow closer to you and we pray jesus that you will bless every woman this week bring us back safely next week we do pray jesus in your name amen